Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 22, Judges chapters 15 and 16. Well, we're going to continue today our story of Samson that appears in the middle chapters of the book of Judges. Now, we finished chapter 14 last week. We're going to begin chapter 15 and get a little ways into chapter 16 today. Well, when we left off, Samson spotted a Philistine girl that he wanted to marry. And so, very disrespectfully demanded that his parents negotiate a marriage contract for her. Properly so, Samson's parents objected to this because this girl was not a Hebrew, and no Hebrew man, let alone a Nazarite Hebrew, should have ever considered marrying a pagan Philistine. But his father gave in, did what he wanted. Now, a seven-day-long Philistine-style wedding ceremony ensued. It was fashioned around a banquet. Thirty Philistine men were invited as companions of the groom, undoubtedly because no respectable Israelite was going to accompany Samson into Philistine territory in order for him to marry a Philistine girl. Now, at this ceremony, it was Samson's duty to entertain the guests. And so one popular means of entertainment was to offer up a riddle. But Samson also spiced that game up a little bit by attaching a wager and a handsome prize to those who guessed the answer correctly. But the game also came with a hook. If the guests lost the wager, they would owe Samson a heap of valuable clothing. And the riddle concerned the lion that Samson had secretly killed on the journey to Timnah when his parents first met Samson's future bride. And then on the next trip, for the actual occasion of the wedding, Samson stopped out of curiosity to view his handiwork and found, to his delight, that some bees had set up a hive and produced honey inside the carcass of the dead lion. Now, since he was alone on both occasions with the lion, the riddle he offered, with the lion being the answer, was unsolvable. Meaning it was quite unfair. It was insulting to his guests. The wager that involved expensive clothing made the matter all the more delicate, and the guests, sensing that they had been duped, went to Samson's bride and demanded that she use all of her womanly wiles to get the answer to the riddle from Samson and then divulge it to them. After all, these were her fellow countrymen. And besides that, they threatened her and her father's lives. And after several days of crying and whining and complaining to Samson, Samson finally caved in to stop the flow of tears and told her what she sought. And immediately, she went to the wedding guests with the solution. Samson, of course, felt betrayed. And only hours, maybe only minutes, before the seven-day wedding ceremony was to conclude, he stormed off in a huff, walked some 20-plus miles to the Philistine city of Ashkelon, and there murdered 30 men for their clothing in order to pay off his 
wager for that riddle. These 30 Philistine men were killed at random. They had no part in the wedding or the wager. So from that standpoint, they were but innocent victims of a serial killer. The Samson was probably never actually married. So we find that the humiliated father of the jilted girl eventually gave her to Samson's best man, a Philistine, since Samson had never returned to finish claiming his bride. Let's continue that story by reading Judges chapter 15. That is page 288 in your complete Jewish Bibles. But after a while, during the wheat harvest season, Shimshon went to see his wife. He he brought a young goat for her and said to her father, I want to go to my wife in her room, but he wouldn't let him. Her father said, I really thought you hated her altogether, so I gave her to your best man. But her younger sister, isn't she even prettier? Why not take her instead? Shimshon said to them, this time I'm through with the Philistines. I'm going to do something terrible to them. So Samson went and caught 300 foxes. Then he took torches, tied pairs of foxes to each other by their tails, and put a torch in the knot of every pair of tails. Then he sent the torches on fire and let the foxes loose in wheat fields of the Philistines. In this way, he burned up the harvested wheat along with the grain waiting to be harvested and the olive orchards as well. The Pilishtim asked, Who did this? And they answered, Shimshon, the son-in-law of the man from Timnah, because he took Shimshon's wife and gave her to his best man. Then the Philistines came up and burned both her and her father to death. Samson said to them, I will certainly have my revenge on you for doing such a thing, but after I do, I'll stop. Infuriated, he began killing them right and left. It was a massacre. Then he went down and stayed in a cave at Atom Rock. But the Philistines went up and pitched a camp in Judah and attacked Lachi. And the men of Judah said, Why are you attacking us? And they replied, To arrest Samson, that's why. To treat him the way he treated us. Then 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave at the uh, Etam Rock and said to Shimshon, Don't you know that the Philistines are our rulers? Why are you doing this to us? And he answered, I've only treated them the way they treated me. And they said to him, Well, we've come down to arrest you and hand you over to the Philistines. And Simpson replied, Swear to me that you won't fall on me yourselves. They said to him, No, but we will tie you up and hand you over to them. However, we promise not to kill you. So they tied him up with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. And when he got to Lehi, the Philistines came running and shouting at him, and the spirit of Adonai came on him powerfully. The ropes on his arms became as weak as burnt flax and fell from his arms. He found a fresh donkey jawbone, took it in his hand, and with it he struck down a thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey I left heaps piled on heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey I killed a thousand men. And after he finished speaking, he threw the jawbone away, and the place came to be called Ramat Lehi. Then he felt very thirsty, so he called an Adonai, saying, You accomplished this great rescue through your servant, then am I now to die from thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God made a gash in the crater at Lehi, and water came out. When he had drunk, his spirit came back, and he revived. This is why the place was called 
Ein Hachori. And it is there in Lahi until now. He judged Israel in the period of the Philistines for 20 years. Some identified amount of time passed and the wheat harvest season arrived. Which means it was around late May, early June, the time of the holy celebration of Shavuot, Pentecost. Samson's anger finally subsided, sufficiently at least, that he decided he would go back to Timnah to see his wife. Now the word used for wife is in Hebrew, Ishe, which can mean woman or wife depending on the context. So it's hard to know what he had in his mind about this about his relationship with this girl. Was he married to her or not? Now for sure he must have felt he had some ownership claim or he would not have expected to visit this girl in her personal chambers. The girl's father explained the situation to Samson. He said they had no idea what to make of Samson abruptly leaving the wedding ceremony but since he hadn't come back and since so much time had elapsed they could only assume that Samson didn't want her anymore, so the father gave the girl to another man. Now the answer to what was actually happening here in this scene might be in the young goat that Samson was bringing with him. Why would he be bringing a gift, and why would it have been considered important enough to include that, this giving of the gifting of a goat, in the account Well, it's usually taught that the young goat was a present of reconciliation. And while possible, it's hard to imagine that such a common and rather inexpensive item would have been suitable to apologize for the tremendous insult and boorish behavior that Samson had displayed several months earlier at his own wedding. Instead, there is another and much more likely possibility. There is an ancient Middle Eastern custom still practiced today, as a matter of fact, in uh, several Middle Eastern cultures, called sadika. And it was and still is followed by men who have no permanent habitation. And thus, their wife is allowed to remain with her parents on a more or less indefinite basis. It's also recognized as a marriage of lesser status than a more typical one whereby a husband and wife set up their own household together. Now, this sadika is probably an evolution of the concubine relationship whereby a man takes a woman to live in his household but she's not given a marriage certificate. She's not married under a hoopah. In other words, she's not given a wedding ceremony. But she does have many rights of a wife. Now, in modern times, the husband in this kind of a marriage is called a Jos Musarib, meaning a visiting husband. Some of you might like that. (laughs) And in this system, it is the husband's duty to bring the wife a gift each time he comes to visit her. Told you you'd like this. Now, it doesn't have to be a real valuable gift, but it can't be so small as to be insulting. A a goat kid would fit that bill just about right in this era. 
Thus, in our case with Samson, in verse 1, he says, I want to go to my Ishishai in her room. Now, you have to understand, no man would ever be allowed to enter a single woman's private chambers, nor could a married woman have a male visitor other than her father or her husband in her own room. Such a, a thing just wasn't done, and it could easily bring the death penalty for both violators, visitor and the visitee. So Samson obviously thought he had some kind of marital relationship with this girl, probably of the Sadika kind, but the father didn't think so. Now, seeing that Samson was surprised and upset, and certainly not wanting to further anger this renowned man of violent and impulsive behaviors, the father offered the girl's younger sister to him. She's even prettier, he says. Why not take her as a nice trade? Now, while that seems a little uncivilized to us, it was usual in those days for such a transaction, and the father was making a sincere attempt to make things as right as he could under the circumstances. Of course, Samson wasn't having any of it. And another rage overcomes him. Samson determines he's going to take revenge for this perceived offense against him, and it was going to be against the Philistines in general. Now, it's self-evident that Samson seemed to lump all Philistines together. If one Philistine insults him, then all Philistines are open to blame and are fair game. I mean, what a strange man Samson was. He seemed to hang out regularly in Philistine territory. He had a hunger for Philistine women, and yet he had some type of deep-seated, burning hatred towards the Philistines as a group, and I think it might even be fair to say that he was rather bigoted towards them. After all, that you could take any race of people and decide that the actions of one equals the actions of them all, then it's pretty hard not to see this as a kind of bigotry. Yes, of course, the Philistines ruled over Israel at this time, and so the Philistines were hardly the good guys. You know, but any soldier who has fought on foreign soil will tell you that it's, it's a dilemma to mentally separate the innocent civilians from the military troops who are trying to kill you. Yet most soldiers instinctively know that there is a difference and they must conduct themselves in that knowledge. Now I also realize that one might legitimately argue that since God was mucking around in the middle of all this with Samson, that perhaps Samson was responding to a righteous kind of impulse within him to destroy these Philistines. But his other actions indicate that Samson really didn't seem to care too much about what God thought, or about God's laws and ordinances. Samson operated primarily in a self-centered manner, by doing what was right in his own eyes, with very little self-control or wisdom anywhere in that mix. Samson decides on a rather inventive kind of collective revenge upon the Philistines. He captures 300 shual, 
binds their tails together in pairs and ties a lit torch to them. The animals race off in panic and confusion and in the process the flaming torches that they're dragging behind them set the dry and ripened wheat fields on fire. A schwal is not actually a fox at least as we think of these cute little reddish dog-like creatures. Rather, they're more akin to jackals. Foxes are solitary animals. It would be near to impossible for, for one man to capture 300 of them. Jackals, on the other hand, travel in substantial packs. So there is the possibility of capturing several at once. Well, I don't personally have a great need to have pets. I like animals. And while I don't necessarily subscribe to the PETA sort of animals or people too kind of philosophy, animals should always be treated with kindness. God prescribes that man is to be humane even with the creatures destined for sacrificing or grown for their meat. What Samson did was downright cruel to these Shual. I mean, it's not hard to imagine that many of them were severely burned, others killed, and every last one of them traumatized to the extreme. He used them as a tool of his personal vengeance, caring little for their fate and suffering. This is becoming an all-too-familiar character trait of this Hebrew strongman. Now understand, just like any ancient society, these fields of grain were the livelihood of the common folks. Okay? And while these folks were indeed Philistine, uh, Philistines who God ultimately once removed from the promised land, they weren't monsters. They were simple farmers. Much of the wheat crops that they depended on were now destroyed. In addition, it was common to plant wheat among olive trees. So many of the olive trees were also burned down. Interestingly, unlike some of his earlier adventures, we don't find any reference to Samson being given divine strength and influence to set these fields on fire. We also don't find any reference to the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, coming upon Samson in that case. So without more to go on, it would be reasonable to assume that this was nothing more than Samson obeying his own evil inclinations. Were the results something that Jehovah would use for his purposes? The result being that the Philistines would be violently upset with the local Israelites in general? Absolutely. The Lord's primary purpose for Samson was to undo the ungodly peace and resultant syncretism between his people and his enemies. Did the Lord approve of wanton cruelty and indiscriminate destruction? Not a chance. Not then and not now. In verse 6, the Philistine farmers begin to ask one another if they knew who might have done this, and some must have witnessed it, because without hesitation, Samson was fingered as the culprit. But unfortunately, these farmers were informed that this happened 
because Samson's almost father-in-law had denied Samson's bride to him and given her to another, and it was this that drove Samson to burn down their crops. The Philistine farmers went as a mob to the man's house, burned it down with him and his daughter inside of it. When Samson found out about this atrocity, he decided that he would reciprocate by killing some more Philistines. Kind of a familiar cycle, isn't it? You know, it's so interesting how humans under stress can react. Because these Philistine farmers had no interest in taking on Samson. Their own army couldn't even deal with him. So they blamed their misery on someone who they determined had upset Samson. Someone they could more conveniently extract some revenge upon, no matter how misplaced. You know, we have a great deal of blame America going on in our time. Because some people who are absolutely petrified of Islam want to shift the blame to our government and our military for acts of terror perpetrated by radical Islam upon us. 9-11 happened, when when 9-11 happened, the knee-jerk reaction of millions across America was to first blame our government for not preventing the attack, and the next to ask what America might have done to offend Islam such that it would cause them to hate us and want to harm us so. Regarding Israel, we have an almost worldwide consensus that the homicide bombings of the public buses, the constant rocket attacks into purely civilian neighborhoods coming from Gaza, and the maniacal desire of a dozen Muslim nations to annihilate Israel is because Israel has done something to offend them. It's Israel's fault that their neighbors constantly attack them and want them dead. And the only reason, other than an underlying anti-Semitism, that this irrational attitude persists throughout the world is because the world fears Islam. If Austria or Argentina, or Belgium were coming after Israel, it would be a different story. Because none of these nations frightens anybody very much. I've said on multiple occasions that history is circular. It repeats itself over and over in identical patterns because people don't change. And the way the universe operates and God responds never changes. Thus, for the world to shift blame to the victim, because to deal with the perpetrator is fraught with difficulty and danger, is an age-old solution. Well, after Samson went on to another random killing, went on his spree upon whatever Philistines happened across his path, he left Philistia and went to a cave at a place called Atom Rock. Now, actually what happened here is that, as he said in verse 7, he would stop killing once he had extracted some undefined amount of more blood from the Philistines that seemed to somehow satisfy his personal sense of justice. And he said he'd then be through with his murdering and so retire to this cave 
to withdraw from the conflict and be left alone. Good luck. Not only were the Philistines hardly ready to forgive and forget, but also the God-ordained purpose of Samson's birth was to create all of this turmoil and to disrupt the peace process. As I've said, history is circular. I'm sure the majority of you have put it together that what we see happening here in Judges between Samson and the Philistines is once again happening between Israel and the modern day Philistines, the Palestinians. Can anyone doubt that the intractable problems of the Middle East and the Israel problem are the Lord's will? Now, I'm about to say something awfully politically incorrect, because I told you at the beginning that I would, so close your ears if you're sensitive. The Lord does not want peace in the Middle East, at least not yet. And this is because the kind of peace that men are wanting and striving for is man-made. It involves necessarily compromising God principles and it means Israel has to essentially give up on the covenants that God made with them. If the Palestinians weren't harassing Israel, somebody else would. Before there was such a thing as Palestinians, Jordan was Israel's arch enemy. Before them, Egypt, Iran, and Iraq. If the leaders of Israel and a growing segment of Israelis weren't so willing and eager to give up much of the Holy Land, half of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, and so intent on showing respect or at least tolerance for the false god Allah, Yehovah wouldn't be allowing the never-ending murderer's row lineup of hostile nations to oppress Israel and keep trouble stirred up so that such misguided efforts as the roadmap to peace couldn't possibly happen. We have today, for example, the Israeli police force forcibly evicting Jewish settlers, their own people, from settlements in Judea and Samaria that only a few years earlier were encouraged and financed by the Sharon government of Israel. Why? Because the current Israeli government, with unceasing international pressure, pressure upon it, thinks that by giving this land to the enemy, the enemy will be appeased and grow to accept Israel. Whatever's left of it. Besides, the Israeli government can't seem to defeat the enemy. So then they'll just shift the blame for the failed peace process to people they can more easily deal with. Their own Israeli citizens. Jews who still believe in God's promises and covenants. You know, the seemingly unsolvable dilemma that is the Middle East today was very much the same way in Samson's era. In fact, it is this instability and constant violence from the enemy and Israel's disobedience response to it all instead of repenting of their ways and returning to, returning to the Lord, this is the hallmark of the days of the judges. And it's that same way again in our time and for the same reasons. 
Naturally, the Philistines figured they had to do something about this Samson guy. Despite being constantly defeated by this one man, they're ready to try it again now. So in verse 9, some Philistine soldiers went up to Judah, and they attacked a town called Lehi. Etam Rock, where Samson was living, was also in Judah, and it was very nearby. The local Hebrew inhabitants of Judah were puzzled over why the Philistines were attacking them. They had good relations with the Philistines. When the residents of Lehi found out that the Philistines were after Samson, and in reality they were extracting some payback upon the Israelites, just as Samson indiscriminately had burned the fields of the Philistines, the men of Judah were more than happy to help the enemy capture him if it meant that the Philistines would leave them alone. Of course, the Israelites of Judah knew Samson and respected his amazing strength. So they sent a contingent of 3,000 men to try and subdue him. And when they found Samson, they were right up front. And they told him they were going to turn him over to the Philistines. And Samson knew these people well. And so he requested only that they not kill him themselves. Now the irony of this is that instead of sending that army of 3,000 men against their Philistine oppressors, these Judahites go after one of their own to appease the oppressor. They asked in regards to Samson's personal war against the Philistines, why are you doing this to us? Fighting the enemy, you see, disrupted their otherwise comfortable lives because they were more interested in preserving a satanic peace with the Philistines than fighting a holy war to rid the place of them. Samson obtained their promise only to bind him and turn him over to the Philistines. They tied him up with new ropes, it says, meaning the strands were still moist and thus were at their strongest. And when they got to their village of Lahi with Samson, the Philistines were ecstatic. Wow! Samson was captured and they got the Israelites to do it for them. But for the first time in a long time, suddenly the Spirit of God that invests Samson with an even greater strength than usual comes upon him. He burst the ropes like they were nothing. He looked around and found the the jawbone of a donkey lying nearby and he began swinging it at the heads of the hundreds of Philistine soldiers who had only moments before stood in relief that they weren't going to have to face him. The jawbone was fresh, it says, in the sense that the sun hadn't dried it out yet and turned it brittle. Samson's words as he kills Philistine soldier after Philistine soldier is a poem. And it's a play on two words. Donkey or ass and heap. As is more common in Hebrew than you might think, the same word can mean two entirely different things. Not at all related. Thus at times in the Bible we'll get some nonsensical English translations because the translator wasn't aware of an alternate meaning. Both donkey and heap 
use the word hamor as their root. This play on words then is best translated as with a, junk, with a donkey's jawbone I heaped heaps. With a donkey's jawbone I killed a thousand men. So what we have is that after killing a large number of Philistines whose bodies piled up to a heap, he chased down more of them. Did the same thing to them, creating another heap of corpses. In fact, the way the Hebrew works, it could have been several more than two heaps of Philistine bodies. Thus we find out how the place where this massacre took place came to be called Ramath Lehi, which means Jawbone Heights or Jawbone Hill. Okay, the battle concluded. Uh, this leaves Samson now exhausted and thirsty. There had been no time to refresh himself and apparently there was no nearby water source. In a rare moment, of proper spirituality, Samson acknowledges that it was the Lord who won this battle and who preserved Samson's life in what only seemed to be a one-man fight against staggering odds. He says to God that he's grateful that God has seen fit to accomplish such a great rescue through his servant. Well, I'm afraid that while Samson was quite aware of his calling as a Nazarite for life, thus here calling himself God's servant. And as God's tool, he was to begin to liberate Israel from the Philistines. He was probably, by far, the most unfaithful of all the judges and paid but lip service to his God-ordained status as a Nasir, Nazarite. Well, Samson is now weakened both by dehydration and sheer physical exhaustion from a fight that probably went on for the most part of the day. He'd not be able to withstand another attack if other Philistines decided to join in. As God had done in the days of old, long before Samson, the Lord sprung forth water, water from a rock to satiate Samson and he was revived. Let's read some more of this story in chapter 16. We'll just read a little of it. Shimshon went to Gaza, which, by the way, is usually pronounced Aza, with the G silent, where he saw a prostitute and went in to spend the night with her. The people in Gaza were told that Shimshon had come. So they surrounded the place where he was and also set an ambush for him all night at the city gates. Their plan was to do nothing at night but to wait until morning and then kill him. However, Samson stayed in bed until midnight, then he got up, took hold of the doors of the city gate, and the two posts as well, he pulled them up, bar and all, hoisted them on his shoulders, and carried them up to the top of the hill overlooking Hebron. And after this, he fell in love with a woman who lived in the Sorek Valley, whose name was Delilah. That's all we're going to read for the moment. <laughs> The final words of the previous chapter are that Samson judged Israel for 20 years. First of all, he didn't judge all of Israel. 
but only the area in the former territory of Dan and in the northern part of Judah, areas that were under the thumb of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines only presented a problem for a relatively small part of the land of Canaan, and but a few of the twelve Israelite tribes were even involved with this. Now, this 20-year reference isn't meant for us to think that 20 years had passed since the donkey jawbone incident and the mention to begin chapter 16 that Samson went down to Gaza and engaged the services of prostitute. That's not it. We don't really know how much time passed between these events. But probably a few years had gone by by the time we reached this episode here in Gaza. Now apparently the Philistines had stopped pursuing Samson after he had single-handedly killed a thousand of them with nothing more than a donkey's jawbone. Now what we ought to take notice of is that Samson created havoc with the Philistines for a substantial amount of times, around two decades. And yet another violation of his Nazarite vow, Samson got involved with a Philistine prostitute down in Gaza. Yes, this is the same Gaza we know about today. Samson seemed to really have a thing for Philistine girls, didn't he? There is no record of any interest of Samson in Hebrew women. Now, would he actually venture all the way from his home in Surah to Gaza simply to buy the services of a prostitute? Well, perhaps. While prostitution was, it, it did go on in Hebrew society, it was not well accepted, but it was in Philistine society. You know, it's amazing that the Philistine army didn't immediately come after Samson. But I suspect, when they heard they were, he was coming to Gaza, but I think they were just hoping he'd be a good boy this time around, enjoy himself, go home, without further decreasing the Philistine population again. Okay. But the townspeople of Gaza weren't so pragmatic. When they heard that Samson was coming, they set a trap for him. They were going to wait for him to come out from the prostitute in the morning and kill him. Thus the stage is set for yet another conflict between Samson on Israel's behalf and the Philistines. Well, these foolish Gazans surrounded the place where Samson was staying. But Samson must have sensed something was up. So he rose at midnight. But rather than stealthily stealing out of town, Samson didn't do anything involving stealth. He goes to the city gates, breaks the lock, and with superhuman strength, lifted the city gates off of their pivoting pins and walked off with the gates. Uh, do it for me. I mean, I can't even imagine the gaping mouths that stood looking at that hole in the city's defensive wall and their missing gates. 
as the morning sun peeked over those eastern hills. You know, there is no reason to try to make the city gates excavate any less than what it is. City gates are not small. Nor could a single human even contemplate lifting one of them. The gates were always made of heavy wood planks, usually put together using large iron spikes. And by this time, iron sheeting often covered the outer side so that it couldn't be so easily burned down. But Samson didn't just take the gates down, he carried them off on his shoulders. I mean, he took them to a hilltop, presumably tossed them over. Now, depending on your translation, it says that he either took the gates to a hill in Hebron, or he took them to a hill towards Hebron. Hebron was 40 miles away. It was also a 2,500 foot elevation. Meaning it was uphill all the way. Therefore, it makes little sense that he would have taken them that far. Almost certainly, he took them on a road that was towards Hebron. The way to Hebron. And arrived at some intermediate place on a hill from where he could see Hebron. Off in the distance. Well, as we stopped in reading, we see in verse 4, it begins one of the most infamous stories in the Bible. The story of Samson and his love affair, albeit a one-sided love affair, with the stunning temptress Delilah. Now this story is going to take some time to deal with, so we're going to stop here for today and take it up the next time we meet.